In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Betches Media presents... Not another true crime podcast. It's all fun and games until someone gets hurt. Welcome back to Not Another True Crime Podcast. I'm Sarah Levine. And I'm Danny Murphy. And you know us as your partners in Crime, Wine, and Time. But we have a special guest this week, Sarah, which is very exciting to me. Yes, we do. She is the granddaughter of award-winning journalist Jimmy Breslin and the host of the new podcast, Finding Lauren. It's Kira Breslin. Hi. How are you Thank doing? You I'm excited to have you. Thank you. I feel like I've never stopped thinking about this case since I learned about it. Well, I think that's the biggest thing with everyone, right? Because it's not that often that you have a case that's unsolved. Usually you find where the person person is or you know at least definitively if she's alive or not. But we don't even have any closure in this case. And that's one of the things ever since I graduated Indiana University, I was like, where is she? What's happening? How are things not progressed in 10 years? And also for a little background, because obviously we know, can you let our uh, listeners know who... The, the case you're specializing in and what made you choose this case? Because obviously you just mentioned Indiana University, so it's close to home for you as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the case follows the disappearance of Lauren Spear, who, um, as many of you know, has been missing and has never been found in the last 10 years. She went out with her friends um, in the beginning of summer, June 3rd, 2011, and The last time anyone saw her was at 4.30 in the morning, walking home from her friend's house, just maybe like two or three blocks back to her apartment. Um, And for me, I always felt a very personal connection to this case because I had just transferred to Indiana for my sophomore year and she had been missing for two months. And I was entering a very similar friend group with a lot of, you know, the same kind of people in the scene from the East Coast. And just leading up to that entire summer, hearing about all these rumors and possibilities and the fact that, holy shit, this girl is actually missing was very crazy. And throughout my entire time at Indiana, her family spent many, many, many months there with their team of investigators and the police obviously working very diligently to try and find answers. And, you know, that went on for a long time. So while you're at school and you're trying to enjoy yourself and live a normal college life and do the things that every college kid wants to do, you're constantly reminded that there's a terrible tragedy that's happened right here, right in front of you, and that there are no answers. And, So, you know, I graduated, but I never, ever forgot it. So what was your process like for starting the the podcast and what kind of research and interviews did you do? Um, 
So I've always been interested in podcasts. I listen to everything. Um, So I definitely knew that with this story that I was passionate about, I was going to go down the route of podcasting. Um, And I think for me, it was actually really easy to at least write the script because I lived it. I knew what it was like. I understood what the culture of the school was like, um, you know, what the aftermath was like. I had many friends who were involved in the search process for her that knew her. Um, so at least in terms of writing the entire narrative, it pretty much flowed where I found some difficulty, obviously was because it's an open investigation with so many people that are so fragile, that are so close to her that have gone through hell, you know, the last 10 years was getting people to open up and to trust me to tell this story without maybe inadvertently causing harm to the investigation or, you know, people, you know, this is like the main theme in this case is that people's guards are up. Um, So with my own process, you know, I had some friends, as I said, who understood just like me, what it was like to be a part of this scene, this lifestyle, knew indirectly who all the players involved were. Some friends I spoke to were involved in the search efforts. Um, I also was able to speak to former police detectives, um, a former homicide detective who worked actually with my grandpa on the son of Sam case and did a, a ton of other amazing stuff to kind of offer a perspective from a detective about how police handle cases and, you know, different comparisons maybe between how a small town police bureau and New York City police would handle something because that's another big issue in this case, right? People think that the police in Bloomington mismanaged things from the beginning. And that's also a big reason why we have no idea what happened. Um, I also had the opportunity to speak with a psychoanalyst and the head of emotional intelligence at Yale University who offered some really interesting insight about dealing with trauma and unresolved trauma and guilt and secrecy. And if people are ruminating on a secret or ruminating on something that they know more about, like what does that do to a person after 10 years? I'm curious too, because obviously you said that you knew about this case anecdotally from being at the school and everything like that. Now looking at it from the lens of you kind of really diving deep into it and investigating it, as a case and like less of a story and more of a case. Have you, uh, have you learned anything or was there a major takeaway from it that is making you look at it in a completely different light? So based off conversations that I've had with different reporters who have been handling the case, and I've also spoken with the private investigators that the family hired to move things along. The craziest thing is that there's really nothing new. Like whatever the theories that were 10 years ago and the possibilities that, okay, well, it was either something happened with the boys or something happened on her way home. Those are literally the same theories that exist today. You know, there was a 2020 episode and um, it was actually a retired FBI agent, Brad Garrett, who I know has also been closely following the case and, and following up on leads He has spent some time in Bloomington looking at some other rumors and theories. There was a big theory about this potential biker gang that was kind of like a mafia in in Indiana being involved um, and some other kind of rumors and speculative 
thoughts like that. But again, like nothing concrete. Those haven't materialized to anything. Um, so again, it goes back to what we always kind of thought. And I think that's my biggest takeaway is that if all of these years later, these are still the only two options, then, you know, you have to maybe think the most obvious explanation for what happened might actually be what happened. And I was wondering too, because it is interesting, because obviously you talked about uh, how reporting and kind of the journalistic eye runs in your family. What did your immediate family think about you getting into this space where they kind of like, oh my God, such a shock. Or like, what was, can you walk us through when you first decided that this was something you wanted to do? Yeah. Um, well, they were super supportive naturally. I, you know, I, I think any parent is proud, of, you know, when their kid wants to do anything. Um, but especially for tackling something that's so sensitive and something that ended up being very, very timely because I started working on this well over a year ago and just knowing that the 10th anniversary of her disappearance was approaching. I was like, I just can't believe that it's been 10 years. And then here we are in the process of releasing it and people are listening to it. And there's all of this crazy stuff going on in the media with Gabby Petito and so many other missing families that are suffering. Um, and they were like, wow, Kira, you're really doing a good thing. Like you could really help someone just, keep people talking, keep people thinking about something, you know? Um, so yeah, they're definitely really supportive. And I feel like kind of what you probably are uncovering, just like the, as the time goes by, it just gets harder and harder to sort of find answers. And kind of with that, I'm curious too, because for our podcast, we do like a different crime each week, but for structuring out yours, what did you what were the main breakdown moments that you were like, this is very important to cover this warrants its own episode. And I obviously know because your second episode, you kind of talk about the culture of the university because you had that as your backing as well. I thought that was like one of the most important things for people to understand. Cause there are a lot of people that have followed the details of the case and just kind of the timeline of her events and what happened. And that's obviously really, really important. And that's why I started with that episode just to kind of recap, this is what happened. But what people don't talk about as much, and that's where I thought I could offer a new perspective, is talking about this culture and this particular scene within Indiana that lend itself to very dangerous situations. There was a lot of drug use. There was a lot of drug, uh, there was a lot of drinking, excuse me. And, you know, maybe people who might have been magnifying Lauren's behavior that one night, or, you know, I've seen a lot of victim blaming, which I think is extremely inappropriate. And that's why I wanted to go in to the culture and make that its own entire episode. Plus, if there is the possibility that it was someone random in the area, I wanted to paint a very detailed picture of that moment in time. What was going on at Indiana while all this other stuff was happening, right? Because it's much bigger than just Lauren. There were other cases that I know I'm sure you guys are familiar with, the Joseph Smedley case, which is like so tragic, um, that I think actually just got reopened again um, recently because the family wasn't happy with the way the police handled things. Um, and talking about the really real issues with 
some of the homeless population, which I'm absolutely sensitive to, but there were some weird incidents, which can happen anywhere. But in a very small town, it seems like it's almost magnified. And so just making sure that someone understood this was the lay of the land. This was the party culture, but this was the scene outside of it will maybe give them a better understanding of the case and then being able to draw their own conclusions. I think one interesting aspect, um, like I said, I think I've been following this case pretty much since the news broke about it and just kind of checking in periodically since there really hasn't been much new information. But um, one point that I thought was actually pretty illuminating was that you mentioned that it was the summer session and not a lot of people were on campus and that seems obvious because like most colleges end in May. This was June, but like I, I don't see many media outlets making that like explicit connection. No. And I don't know. Where did you guys go to school? Uh, East Coast Fordham. Okay. Emory. But, like, okay. So, but Emory might have a similar kind of like culture to that degree, but obviously a much smaller school. But you think about Indiana, right? There's 40,000 kids, especially on um, a Thursday night going out, Thirsty Thursday at Indiana, you know, at that time of night when she was walking around, there would have been millions of kids, especially because the radius, again, where she was, that's where mm. so many people lived. The apartment building, Smallwood, that she lived in had 250 apartments. Um, so there was probably a thousand people that lived in that building. So, and then the bar was just, you know, two blocks away. And then on the streets where she was walking up to 10th and college and then 11th and college where the five North townhomes were, I mean, there were a bunch of smaller kind of townhouses right there, but there were frat guys that lived there. They would have been sitting on their porch. They would have been, you know, getting Taco Bell or Waffle House or whatever. And just everyone would have been out and about, but summer session, it really does die down. Everyone leaves. Some people stay, but it's not what it was. And that's another huge issue is that, you know, there weren't any real witnesses. There was someone who saw her walking. Um, and, but I think she worked at another bar that was kind of in the local area. But, you know, again, if this were during the school year, there probably would have been a lot more people around. That is, and I because I also have been wondering this too, because you obviously are, unpacking a lot about the university, the culture in general. Have you been in contact with the university at all? Like, hey, this is what I'm doing. Did you reach out to them for any conversation or has there been a dialogue with that or no? <laughs> there hasn't been a dialogue with the school and I didn't necessarily think mm -hmm. there needed to be because they're obviously well aware of what happened. Um, and, you know, I'm sure, I mean, Indiana is an amazing place. I don't want anyone to misconstrue that I am saying otherwise. Um, and they did as much as they could from a university's perspective. They tried to crack down on the party and they tried to kind of control what they could. Right. Um, so but again, my position was always to. Talk about what happened from a perspective of a student who walked in similar shoes. And I, it's funny because now that people are listening to this story and a lot of local people are listening to this story, and I know a lot of IU alumni and IU newsroom people are listening to this story. Um, you know, not everyone's happy with my description of the town and what it was like. And that's okay. It's a very real 
description. And I obviously, I stand by that. Can you tell us about, because I've listened to like the first three episodes, but there's two more, right? Yeah. So I don't know what's to come in the next two episodes, but were you able to get in contact with anybody kind of close to the case or maybe like sort of tangentially related? So as I said, it was very difficult, especially when I was starting this, to get people to open up. I had some mutual friends that I wanted to speak to that were just so hurt by this situation and lack of movement that it was really difficult to talk about, um, which I completely understand. And obviously, respectfully to her parents, you know, I, I can't imagine what they've been going through. And they were the first people that I wanted to speak to, which I wasn't able to speak to. Would that be your, um, uh, one of the hopes from the, for the entire podcast to come out to kind of have it be like, to show people like, this is what I have been doing. I am, I want to have be a place to kind of have people come speak truth and recap and give their, uh, opinion that could probably help sway it. Would you, would that be like a hope for you down the line? A hundred percent. And more than anything, right? If there's someone who is holding a secret or knows more than they're coming forward with, maybe this will apply some pressure. You know, it's been 10 years. You know, if you're holding on to something every single day that you know more than you've let on, at what point do you crack? And I don't believe that this has been talked about enough. And again, like for her family, it's devastating. And I think any parent who sends their child to school, I mean, this is an absolute nightmare for them. I I talk to my parents about this all the time. This was their biggest fear, especially when I was even going there. They're like, uh, you know, are you sure you want to go there? Like, what's going on? Are you guys safe? You know, how is this? How are you handling yourself? Um, and so again, I, I think that everyone can relate and if this applies some pressure, then I think that's wonderful. So in order, I feel like for this case to be solved or there to be a lead, like, do you think, like, what do you think needs to happen? Just somebody maybe remembering something that they, or that they didn't know was a big deal or someone kind of cracking? I think it comes down to someone eventually coming forward with some more information, right? It could be minuscule, but I think that's like the one piece of the puzzle that's missing because anyone who does know anything and anyone who's been supportive of the family has come forward Mm. with everything that they know and everything possibly can. And from my conversations with the investigators, they have followed every single lead, every tip, doesn't matter. They followed it. And they're still coming back to the same possibilities. Yeah. I think the, the most, almost unbelievable part is just that there's been no sign, no trace, like nothing. And you know, Bloomington was like heavily searched and it's not even like she wasn't reported missing for like a week. I mean, it started pretty much immediately. Right. And and that's the other thing is where is she? You know, it's I think if we knew where she was, that would definitely be able to help us find more closure 
on what actually happened, but it's, that's the other really scary thing because you think about this town and as you said, the area, the area was very heavily searched. Um, and when you go around in your head about the possibilities, you know, how do you, how does someone just disappear? Like, right. You know, there has to maybe be a vehicle involved perhaps. I mean, it's, I, I don't know. I, I am just as dumbfounded as you, honestly. Sarah, you even said this was the case that inspired you to start the podcast, right? So it really. It did. Yeah. Because me like a, total clown i was like oh i'm gonna do some like deep dive redditing like i didn't know from actual journalism right and it's like no there's there there were really two possibilities Mm -hmm. i mean i personally was i don't know i guess i i I was sort of inclined to believe like it could be random just because she hasn't been found just because she hasn't been found so i was like how you know, how are these like three guys from New York able to pull off this perfect crime when they're all fucked up in the heat of the moment? It made me really wonder. Um, but there but, you know, of course, there are like, you know, the fact that they were like the last people to see her is huge. So it has honestly like it's not one of those cases where we're like we have no idea. I mean, we've covered that before, like other missing people who just they're out driving by themselves and then they vanish and there's really no indication one way or the other. But this it's like, you know, if you believe Occam's razor, which, you know, the most likely possibility is what mm-hmm. happened, then you kind of have two. and like, you know, barring some wild like biker gang or someone DM'd us that there could be like an Israel keys connection because he was maybe in. The- and I was like, all right, you know, if you want to go into like that kind of, spiral town then you can but that's when it gets unpredictable almost and you're like maybe but i you know you it kind of is like the noise of it all and not the yeah yeah right exactly and that's you know in the last episode i do kind of get into some other possible theories but i don't spend a whole lot of time on them because i don't think and again, these are just based off conversations that I've had with people, the investigators who I know have followed down all of these leads and tips, you know, they're not super substantial, right? So it's really, really, really hard to say. Um, and I think that's why so many people are just so heartbroken over this. Definitely. And I wanted to talk about your kind of like family connection to, I guess, investigating or crime. So, I mean, what was it like growing up, like with your grandfather who had this huge impact in the Son of Sam case, which like terrorized New York for a while? Oh, absolutely terrorized New York. Um, and that was probably, I mean, he was well known for his journalism because he wrote for the Daily News and he wrote literally until the day he died. But um, Son of Sam was absolutely like one of the things that made him, I would say, a household name. And I don't know if you watched the the Sons of Sam documentary that came yes. out on that. Yeah, I mean, they literally devote, I would say, like two episodes and they're just like Jimmy Breslin, the Jimmy Breslin letters, the Jimmy Breslin letters. <laughs> Um, and it was funny because my dad, who's the oldest of the six kids, 
was his driver. My grandpa refused to drive. He just wanted to sit there and scribble and observe <laughs> the license, period. He that no, that wasn't his game. And so my dad was his driver. And you know, he would call him three o'clock in the morning, wherever, James, I need you to take me here. And it would go to some bar, something. Mafia would be shooting up the place, you know, and my dad would just stand outside essentially and just wait and say, you know, I'm with Jimmy. I I don't really know. Um, and there were a lot of cases like that where my dad helped out, but specifically in Son of Sam, he was working at the Daily News and was there the day that the letters came in. And I know it had to be fingerprinted and all of this stuff. Um, so growing up, I heard about all these stories and I heard about, it was almost normal to me. I, and I would imagine these crazy happenings in, in my head, um, that just seemed so fantastic. And it's funny because my grandpa was also friends with some of these people, some of these mafia guys, some of these like crooked characters. I mean, he was honestly, when, when he was given his Pulitzer, he was the, the champion of the ordinary citizen is what they called him. So he was, you know, as much as he liked to uncover dirt and truths, he was also really a man of the people, um, which is really interesting. And I think that's why a lot of people loved him and, and respected him. Um, but yeah, I mean, even my dad to this day, right, he just kind of tries to instill that energy, that vibe. Uh, you know, that my grandpa had and, and carried with him the kind of rough New York street vibe. Definitely. And so um, do you think growing up made you more kind of wary about the worst possible scenario that could happen? Or would you say it made you maybe gave you like a morbid curiosity or what would you say? Well, I think every parent tells their kid you know, don't talk to strangers and, you know, watch for your surroundings. And certainly growing up in New York City, I know the school that I attended, you know, made us take self-defense classes in fourth grade, sixth grade and eighth grade that became a little bit more intense as you got older. Um, so obviously those were always things that we were that we were taught. But yeah, I mean, and I talk about this on the podcast too. When you're young and and you know, you go to college and it doesn't matter where you came from, but definitely for me coming from New York, you know, you think at a certain age that you've seen everything, that you're an adult and you're really not. You're a kid. You have so much more to learn about the world and to learn about people and yourself and um and I think that's something that people really need to remember, especially in this story and Lauren's story and any story of someone who's gone missing is that, you know, you think that nothing bad will ever happen, that you're invincible. And, you know, that's unfortunately not always the case. Bad things do happen. Absolutely. And so the first three episodes of Finding Lauren are out now. So there's two more to go, but can you maybe give us like a little sneak preview of what's going to be covered in the last two episodes? Absolutely. So the episode four will come out on Monday um, and episode five will come out the following Monday and episode four and five, I would say are definitely more emotional. Um, 
they talk about the aftermath and, you know, what it was like searching and going through that. And I have some friends who, as I said, ex- went through the searches and were there that summer and participated in the searches and what that felt like and what it felt like coming back to school and trying to move forward um, with this tragedy and dealing with that. And episode five, um, kind of puts things into pr- perspective of, you know, where are we today? What is college even like today with COVID and all of these things that have changed? And, you know, how does that affect Lauren's story? You know, do people even think about it the same way as they did? Um, and I think that it's really important for people to, again, think about that because this is something real that a lot of people are hurting over. And I honestly wish I honestly, I've considered, I'm like, I should just go to Indiana and just wait outside one of the sorority houses and, and ask them, like, just tell me like about college. Like, what are you guys doing right now? Cause I'm so curious if this affects them at all, the way it affected me and the people that I was close to when I was at school. Yeah. I mean, we we did an interview with Payne Lindsay and that was basically just what he did. He was like, well, I've heard about this case. I'm going to go to Osceola, Georgia and just start knocking on doors. A hundred percent. And granted, I didn't have that luxury when I was working on this all of last year because it was COVID and there were so many things that were, you know, just not the same. And certainly I know for certain things like Smallwood, for example, that building doesn't exist anymore. I think they rebranded it to the Avenue on college or, or something like that. It got like a full makeover. Um, and I've heard that 11th and college, you know, where she was last seen is now covered in surveillance cameras. I mean, like you literally can't, that mm. there are things like that, that, you know, have changed. Um, but I do wonder about campus safety and and just how kids are living their lives. Yeah, that's I mean, that's really interesting. It would it would be good if there was like something that came out of this, even if it's the cameras, if it's the university, maybe having more oversight on like what's happening with the students. And of course, like a break in the case would also be a huge plus and what we're all hoping for. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I'm not an investigator. I'm not the expert here, right? The investigators know far more than I do. And that's, you know, I'm so lucky to even have had an opportunity to speak with them and, you know, be open with them about what I'm doing here. But I think that just keeping people talking, keeping people interested, keeping people caring about her family and her story is what will hopefully cause someone to come forward. Um, Actually someone, the police detective that I spoke to on the podcast, his name is Bill Clark. He is amazing. And he was saying, you know, it, it does happen often where years go by and someone is, you know, at a bar drinking and, you know, they're just emotional or they're feeling, you know, X, Y, Z, and they let something slip. They say something and that's all you need. Yeah. I mean, it's we've seen it play out in like podcasts, 
documentaries like it. I mean, it absolutely happens. Well, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on. Um, everybody, you can go listen to Finding Lauren on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much wherever else you find your podcasts. Um, Kira, is there anywhere else that you would like to direct our listeners if they're interested in learning more? Uh, definitely just follow her family's Facebook page, um, the official Lauren Spear updates page. That's where you're going to find anything up to date from her family. And they're also obviously on Twitter and that page just in general, if you feel any sort of connection to this, I mean, you'll find so many messages of just positivity and praise. And it's a really touching, touching Facebook group. So absolutely, if you care, just support her family. That's definitely what I would say. Thank you so much. Thank you. Not Another True Crime Podcast is produced by Jorge Morales Pico and Sean Kilby. Our hosts are Sarah Levine and Danny Murphy. Editing by Jorge Morales Pico. Social media by Sarah Levine. Be sure to follow at NATC Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And send us your emails to NATC at Betches.com. Betches.